Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called, through the light of faith in the Catholic intellectual tradition, to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and a life of human flourishing. It is a pleasure today to have with us Dr. John Hittinger, Professor of Philosophy and Director of the John Paul II Institute at the University of St. Thomas. Professor Hittinger is a Thomist who has spent his recent years founding and building the John Paul II Institute, where one can engage in the interdisciplinary study of the thought of John Paul II using philosophy, theology, literature, and history. He completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Notre Dame and his graduate work at the Catholic University of America. Professor Hittinger has published four books, numerous articles, and presented papers on a variety of topics, including John Locke, Jacques Maritain, military ethics, liberal education, political philosophy, and of course, the thought of John Paul II. It is a great pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, George. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, and I look forward to our conversation. Good, good. Um, so I thought we could start with a, um, a, an inadequate thought experiment, but maybe it's a place to, to begin. Um, so it's, it's 2020, John Paul II um, is alive today, and um, St. Thomas Aquinas is also alive. And they've been given the task, in different cities of course, they won't compete directly, but they've been given the task of founding Catholic universities. What would they look like? Would they be very, very similar? Would they be very different? Um, I think John Paul II would probably have a robust and well-funded skiing program and hiking <laughs> program. Um, but what, uh, where would they overlap? Um, and and how, what, what does that tell us about their visions of Catholic liberal education? Well, you know, there's no doubt they share the same goal, which is that human beings need to be educated to come to knowledge of God in their eternal destiny, to develop uh, a wisdom that includes metaphysical truth ethics and knowledge of natural law, a knowledge of nature, so much they would have in common. But I do see a different approach and a different way of ordering the curriculum, perhaps. And that would be something along this line, that John Paul II thought we needed to emphasize the reality of the person and to have that at the center. In other words, personalism. Now, personalism is really began more as a, as a political movement to try to salvage the dignity of the person against the various totalitarian or even reductive kind of um, individual, individualism. But I think it has sort of blossomed into a, um, a field of study. But uh, how, well, how would that affect the structure and order? I think he would be, John Paul II would be interested in, in having a strong literary and historical component, which Thomas Aquinas, you know, is not unaware of, but I think it doesn't fit that directly into the liberal arts if it is, it's at sort of the bottom of the liberal arts, right. and then you get up into philosophy and theology. 
Also, of course, he would use this more modern philosophy called phenomenology, which, you know, briefly put, I would say, is a reflection upon experience so that we can uh, know about how we encounter things or how things manifest themselves to us. And, and um, so, so that would be the beginning. Now, George, just a little footnote, you know, I actually did have a two-year point at Orchard Lake, Michigan, where I was asked to develop a curriculum based on the thought of John Paul II. And I worked with the faculty there to develop a, a, um, an integrated Catholic core curriculum, which did use great books, theology, philosophy, history, um, languages. <clears throat> so I'm speaking from an actual attempt we made, and, and there was one graduating class. Wow. Unfortunately, it, it uh, couldn't sustain itself because the donor who had started sure. changed their mind on what they wanted to do. But anyway, there, there's great promise yeah. in um, using John Paul II's thought to form yeah. a curriculum. I'd love to see yeah. that, by the way. We yeah, should, I'll we should send have it coffee. I'd love to see yeah. it. Um, the, uh, I'm one of those nerds. I, in, in my spare time, I, I like to think about curriculum. It's, it's kind of a You know, <laughs> I should say it, it actually included a Polish history class. Oh, wow. That was partly because it was sponsored by Orchard Lake, which is a okay. Polish American um, entity. But, but also, we judged that, look, Poland was at the heart of 20th century right. history. So to study Poland in a way is to study. It, it's to study Europe and then your 20th century history. So, right. well, and you know, as a, as a philosopher and as a professor, you're always growing and developing. And I wonder, as someone who who has spent most of their life in the Thomist tent, if you will, it's a big tent. Um, have there been parts of your thought more broadly that, as you've in, in, engaged with with personalism, has that modified any of your Thomistic outlook, or is, it, has, is there sort of still a deep integration? Mm. Have you been able to put all the pieces together? Well, you know, that is a great question, because as you know, in among the Thomists, there is a lot of debate about this, and I would say the majority are not that open to or favorable sure. to Thomistic personalism. And, and there are various reasons, you know, partly Maritain and Deconic apparently had some disagreements right. on what personalism is, and there are forms of personalism that I think DeConnick decisively showed to right. be deficient. But um, because they have these different methodological approaches, I think there is still a tension between the two. So, and, and students of John Paul II debate you know, was he a phenomenologist? Was he a Thomist? I mean, right. I don't think we want to get into that now, but right. to answer sure. your question, I would say that um, what I've learned from John Paul II is that personalism and the phenomenological aspect of personalism, I think, enriches Thomism. It doesn't replace it. It still needs Thomism for the metaphysics, right. for the natural law, for you know, the core truths of what we need to know, but I think it supplements it by opening up an experiential dimension that I think brings uh, a deeper understanding of those truths, but most of all to, to 
to focus on this philosophy of the person. Since Thomas Aquinas, briefly, he spoke about the person primarily in his Trinitarian theology, didn't use it much in his anthropology. So I think there are good reasons to see how personalism and Thomism really do complement and support each other. Well, that's great. And I mean, I loved conversations. You get a you get a, a, a really smart personalist in the room and a really smart Thomist in the room, and you just buy a pitcher of beer and you just let yeah. them talk. And <laughs> as long as charity reigns, it, yes. it can be a, a bracing engagement. And um, I think um, you know, as we, I think we're we've moved beyond the those debates that you mentioned with Marathon and the kind of, I think we're we're we, we there's there are the new generations that are have come I think are, are more open to how these things might interact and I recently had to conduct a job search and I couldn't decide if I was looking for a Thomistic personalist or a personalist Thomist I wanted someone who could do both had the metaphysical <laughs> yeah. chops and had that, that that entire scope of of Thomistic philosophy but also could start where the students are yes. which is an embodied experiential you know uh, person, it, it reminds me also of, um, of you know this this relationship um, between poetry and philosophy, um, but but there are th these kinds of dynamics that we need. Um, it's interesting to, to think about which you know where would we send our own children? Would we send it to Thomas's university or or, or to, to John Paul II's? Um, you know, you said he doesn't talk a lot about the person, um, and I think that that's that's interesting. Except in that that treatise on the Trinity, you know, he doesn't say a lot about culture either. That's correct right? um, because it was assumed. It was assumed. It was assumed. And, and so, and we see some of that, that absence even as recently as the Second Vatican Council. You know, there was a kind of naivete about culture, um, and yet the church has had to, to, to develop teachings about culture since then in the way, and you can almost argue that personalism is something that's arisen in, in our time to, f to fill a need that wasn't really felt by Thomas. Um, so it's interesting to, to think about how, yeah. how he would... Uh, well, you know, I, I think that's an excellent point, George, about the, the importance of culture and, you know, just to be outrageous on this, I would say if Thomas Aquinas were alive today, he would most probably found the same university that John Paul II <laughs> would. But let me tell you why. I think there's a little bit of context we've got to consider. And, and, and you mentioned this, that Thomas Aquinas did not have to probe the theme of culture because he, he assumed it or it wasn't problematic. Right. But I would also say that the whole movement into the modern world brought about some positive gains that we sometimes forget. And briefly, I would list these as the differentiation of both knowledge and spheres of activity, recognizing a greater autonomy to things like science, philosophy, art, culture, and that, that's not bad. That's a positive gain. You know, Vatican II said, we do recognize the rightful autonomy of secular disciplines. I mean, Aquinas did too. Right. But um, I think that idea of the integrity or autonomy of new areas, like, say, economics, even politics, cultural studies, that this is what requires this new emphasis, A, on culture, and then B, but uh, just a brief point here, I think the fact that, I, I think it was John Carol Votiwa wrote to de Lubach during the Vatican Council and said, the person is being pulverized by mass culture. 
It's person and the dignity of the person that's in peril. And so the fact that in our world today where scientific reductionism, technological use and abuse of nature and persons, um, for all these reasons, I think person has to be, that's why I would say, I think Thomas Aquinas would agree, has to be the right. kind of unifying focus of this study of the world today is let's not lose sight of persons. Right. And don't just go through philosophy of nature or come down from metaphysics, uh, even ethics. Look, person has to come into its own. And I think that's what the world needs. That's what the church recognized. John Paul II was part of that. But Thomas Aquinas, I think, would do the same. I think he would do the same. <laughs> um, well, that, that's encouraging. Um, and I, I, one of the interesting things is, you know, often we hear it in the phrase of the truth of the human person, right? Yeah. The, the truth of, um, of what it means to be human. Um, and I know you, you've read um, George Weigel's, uh, all his books probably on, on John Paul II. Um, and in that, in that first magisterial biography, um, he relates a story, um, and it, it goes something like this. In, in the communist era in Poland, there was a popular joke. It went something like this. Um, the party boss asks the worker, how much is two plus two? And the Polish worker responds, whatever you would like it to be. And this, you can hear echoes of Václav Havel and, and the culture of lies. Um, near the end of the communist era, though, um, in the Solidarity Movement, there were people in Poland holding, seen holding signs that said something like, for Poland to be Poland, two plus two must always equal four. The idea that if we're, if we're going to get back to, to the fa and found a just, truly human society, fundamental truths have to be affirmed. And it might, you might say, well, two plus two, four, that's an elementary truth. We learned that in first grade. You know, why are we going over this? But it, it's a fundamental truth that if it's occluded, then we get lost. And so this idea that if we, if, we yes. lose the tr if we lose the truth of the human person, if we lose the truth of the human person and all that's implied in that truth, we will lose our way politically, culturally. So in a sense, if you start with the human person, it, it's a gateway to all these other realms. No, that's a great thought. I mean, there's no doubt an allusion there to 1984 right. when Winston Smith has to recall that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and that the party can't change that. But look, the deeper thing, actually, that brings all of this together is conscience. It is because conscience is what is at the core of the person. That's not a new truth. I mean, that goes back certainly to Augustine, to the gospel. It, it's hinted at by Socrates and Cicero, but I think the idea that the person must be free to acknowledge the truth <clears throat> is sort of a, <clears throat> it's, it's a key idea why we affirm religious freedom. It's not indifferentism, but it's a recognition that each person must, in their own conscience, seek the truth live by the truth, be free to speak the truth as they say it. And that is what, George, I would agree is really the heart of the truth of the person is that we are free, we have a conscience, and that that must be respected. And that is what is at peril in totalitarianism, in fundamentalist religious movements throughout the world, in um, 
our culture, our liberal culture today, which, you know, has this hostility towards the truth that they may not particularly agree with or like, but to try to shout down or suppress the search for truth, the expression of truth, the embrace of truth, that's the core of the life of the person. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I, I think it's interesting that you, you bring up um, the question of freedom um, in relation to this. Um, you know, he, you know, in, in Ex Corte, he talks about the church, John Paul II talks about the church being an expert on humanity. You know, yes. if, if you want to find the expert in the room, what we would call, I guess, a subject matter expert. I guess that's the jargon of higher yes. education today. Um, the church is a subject matter expert on, on the human person. A SME. Uh, <laughs> heaven help us. <laughs> um, and, um, but then he also, there's that famous line in Gaudium et Spes, in which um, many of us think that John Paul II himself may have been, this may have come from him, right? And, and we don't know that for sure, I don't think. Um, but... Um, there's this passage that he cited. I think it's the most frequently cited passage from any Second Vatican II document um, that John Paul II cites. Um, and it, it goes something like, the truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. So it, 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 it's the light of God uh, and, and of Christ that illuminates who we are. And then he goes on, um, Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, he who fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear, makes his supreme calling clear. The idea that if we pursue to know Christ, we will ultimately know who we are as a human person, and from that flows who we are as free persons. And so that freedom flows from that kind of, uh, it, it flows from a kind of knowledge of who God is and who we are, and then that freedom can be rightly ordered. Um, I wonder if you can say a bit more about freedom, however, because that's a highly contested problem and, or challenge. Um, we often hear, think of freedom as a kind of license, as a kind of freedom from, a freedom of indifference. George Weigel has written about this mm -hmm. in his Tale of Two Monks. Um, could you say a bit about this? Yes, well, that is really at the heart of the matter. And as you mentioned, George Weigel, but also Rocco Buttiglione, most commentators on the work of John Paul II say that that issue of freedom and its relation to truth is, is the central theme of the central theme of person. And that is the way to, you know, deal with or, or encounter and understand the modern challenge to the church is that freedom is a core value. But it's a core value that can't stand by itself. In Redemptor Hominus, John Paul II said, freedom comes with a requirement and a warning. The requirement for freedom is truth. Now, by the way, he, he proves this phenomenologically in his great work, The Acting Person, that any act of freedom at some point must have a moment of truth, that is, and a judgment that what I am doing is truly good. I, I may be mistaken about it, but, you know, that's platonic as well, that there's one place we don't want to have the lie, Socrates says in the Republic, and that is the truth about the good. Okay, so that's the requirement that philosophers and I think phenomenology can lead us to, but the warning is this, are there not evidently ways of using freedom that, that degrade 
the agent or abuse others. I think the latter should not be problematic, but people start to close their eyes, you know, that if we mutually agree to abuse each other, that's okay. Or, but look, the idea that freedom can lead to degradation, we see all around us with problems of addiction, okay. problems of um, just a, a materialism in which people are trapped in their own spending, debt. I mean, freedom must find what its purpose is, this freedom for. I don't know if you mentioned that yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. the freedom to love is the obvious lesson of both human experience and certainly the gospel. That freedom is a freedom to love and the most noble use of freedom is the freedom to make that sacrifice of oneself for others as Christ did, as we see in the saints. It's, it's, it's freedom, but it's freedom that is brought to its culmination, really, in, in service to others. Well, it, it's, that's exactly right. And in a way, this brings us back to the, the, the question about Thomas, right? You know, if, if Thomas is establishing a university, what, what does academic freedom look like yes. you know, at, at that university? Um, and we know that the University of Paris was a lively place, right? Yes. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot going on. Um, and it's interesting that the, the, the title, Ex Corte Ecclesia, it, it points to the idea of the relation between the church and the Catholic church and the Catholic university and how they're deeply related. And Ex Corte, he... he brings up this question of academic freedom. Um, and he says that the church accepting the legitimate autonomy of human culture, and especially the sciences, recognizes the academic freedom of scholars in each discipline in accordance with its own principles and proper methods. And, and this is the last section, um, and within the confines of the truth and the common good. So um, in a sense, it, academic freedom is like a river of flowing forward, carrying boats forward of human knowing, but there are banks to this river, and those are the truth and the common good. Could you say a bit about, about that and, and what, how does that play itself out? Are there areas that maybe we should, we should say, you know, academic, you know, academic freedom misunderstood might lead us there, but academic freedom properly understood is gonna cause us to pause and consider? No, that is a, a great question. It's a tough challenge. But again, I think John Paul II made a great contribution, as have others in our day. But the idea that there is an autonomy, let me start with that, because I mentioned that earlier. The recognition of the autonomy of the disciplines. You know, So John Paul II put a commission together to better understand what happened in the Galileo case, the proper autonomy of science ultimately was not respected there. But there is this idea that it must be pursued responsibly. So every discipline should carry its own responsibility. So you're not free to say anything, I mean, as an academic, but in your discipline that you have learned the truth, the methods, and everyone has a freedom <clears throat> within that. Now, obviously people can challenge their tradition and step outside of it, but there must be some kind of accountability. That would be the first principle. I think the second one is 
that at a Catholic university, the common good includes the keeping alive of the tradition and the living witness to that tradition. So the university, the Catholic university has every right to say we want 50% of our faculty to be practicing Catholics and that they have a respect for the tradition such that they will not just be teeing off on the tradition as part of what they do in the classroom. Again, it, it's got to be done in a prudential way. And then finally, I would say theology is a discipline whose source involves the magisterium, that revelation and tradition both require a magisterial dimension and so that a theologian ought to ask for a mandate, a mandatum from the bishop, in which the bishop can trust that theologian to acknowledge that the sources of Roman Catholic theology are um, tied in with the hierarchy and, and the church. So it, 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 is a, it is a challenge on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think... It's, it's something that is clear that there is freedom, but again, the disciplinary restraints, the responsibility that each takes on, and of course the common good is, is what both, particularly the institution, has to contribute to society's own diversity by having a Catholic university. So obviously the Catholic identity um, has to be established somehow. Th those are just a few right. first well, thoughts. Yeah, and, and the, the question related to disciplinary um, sort of structures, I mean, we've all seen this, right? You get, you, know, you get your PhD in one discipline and suddenly you're an expert in every discipline, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, you teach an introductory course one semester in one area and then suddenly you, you know it all, right? Um, and this is, just seems to be one of the, one of the problems of, that comes along with the trade, with the guild. You just, there's that tendency. The person in the room that we haven't talked about and we're not going to have time to really talk about is Cardinal Newman, right? And, yes. And, and, he, and, you know, and it would be interesting to ask that question at a future time. If, if, if John Paul II is founding university and, and St. Thomas is founding, would those differ from Newman's idea of a university? But Newman, Newman made that, that very clear case that if you, in that circle of disciplines, if you don't have theology as the queen discipline, the other ones are going to rush in and take its place. Yes. And that speaks to this question that John Paul II talks about, about you know, the confines of the truth, the disciplinary boundaries. And so what can look like limits are, are just really, they're, they're, they have nothing to do with faith or ecclesial politics. It's really just the limits of the discipline. Um, and recognizing, you know, I'm, I am, you know, I'm a musicologist, right? I'm a, by training a musicologist. I, I, can, I can participate in a conversation about other topics, but I don't have that expertise in those right. other areas. And that's just, that's just common sense. But it's often forgotten in the academy. It's often forgotten. No, I like that notion of the circle of knowledge. And I would say a particularly important field today is philosophy. Because so many disciplines have now become overrun by philosophical aberrations. I mean, you know, Marxist and other forms sure. of thinking that really are... Need, need to be challenged, and I think a, a Catholic university would have good reason to be hesitant to hire a bunch of Marxists in this or that department when um, philosophically it's, 
it's really a bankrupt discipline. So philosophy, John Paul II and Newman would both agree, and, and no doubt Aquinas, is really a critical discipline because it's a rational discipline. But it needs to be there to protect against the sophist, basically. I mean, I would say this goes back to Socrates. Yeah, you know, a great yeah. part of his effort and even passion was fighting the sophist who come in and really confuse, distort. So we don't want sophist. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great you mentioned that because um, I think Socrates sets an example that we see in Thomas Aquinas and John Paul II, right? So um, before I became Catholic in, in graduate school, I did a lot. I spent a lot of time reading Marxist philosophers, right? Um, and yeah. um, and so that training as a Catholic now, I can engage Marxist philosophy. Um, yes. And I think just as Socrates stayed in the in the in the public square and engaged the sophists, you know, Thomas Aquinas, you know, we, we know that some of his articulations of his, of opposing views were then taken in the Enlightenment, right? Because he gave the best case. That's right. Um, so at a Catholic, I'm glad you brought this up because it's not that at a Catholic university we won't engage, no, you know, we, or, or, or be study. unfair to them. No, we have to study Marxism. We have to study. Actually, did you know John Paul II, Carol Votiwa, going into the, um, what do you call it when they go in to elect the Pope? I just oh, yeah, had a, the, the a little... Consistory? Yeah, yeah, that he actually took with him a Marxist journal <laughs> and that a few cardinals said, who is this Votiwa? What are you reading? Yeah. And he said, oh, it's a Marxist journal. Uh, no, he, obviously we right. study Marx, we study Freud, we study Nietzsche. I mean, there's no limits on what we're going to read, but... This is part of building a faculty and building a right. curriculum and so on. I think that's where the integrity and identity of the university has to be preserved. But once that's there, yeah, they ought to be able and willing to, to take on everything. Once in an, an accreditation visit, um, um, one of the team members, this was at another institution, said, said, well, you know, this is a Catholic institution. It can't have academic freedom. And I looked him in the eye and I said, if we don't have academic freedom, then we're not truly Catholic. That's, and, sir, and that's, that's uh, right. Know, and in sometimes, some ways, and I think one of our, our, our uh, professors, Randy Smith, wrote something recently about this, about how that uh, if it's truly a Catholic university, there's going to be a level of freedom of inquiry that you're not going to find other places. That's right. Um, and so, wow, this, we could talk for longer, but I think we're out of time. You so. know, let me just add one more thing on <laughs> Absolutely. that. I, I do think it goes back to your first point here that we started with, and we can close on it, and that is the joy in truth. It's certainly been my experience mm. at Notre Dame Catholic University, but visiting many other universities that, yes, the joy of discourse ought to be what Absolutely. most marks us. And so, yeah. you know, that, that includes discourse about any and all. Marxism, right. Straussianism, Platonism, you know, literary theories. No, that's, you've gone too far. <laughs> yes, right, <laughs> so, that's right. You know, Yale once said, we will hire neither Leninists nor Straussians. That's sort <laughs> that's of a hilarious. famous line. Maybe but anyway, um, thank you, George. Sure. For, and could you say a bit about the Institute? There might be those who want, would like to continue this conversation in the classroom in the yes. future. Yes. Well, thank you. The John Paul II Institute is a new effort at the university, a new initiative that our president, Richard Ludwig, has asked me to undertake to uh, the main thing now is an online MA program studying the thought of John Paul II and its philosophy, theology, and literary works. And... Um, also taking students abroad to Poland 
and we've just started, uh, or just put on the books anyway, a Polish studies minor. So it, it, it's a way to, most of all, deepen our knowledge of what John Paul II has brought to us, but also to see that cultural issue as it comes through the Polish experience. Yeah, that's great. Sign me up. Okay. Um, and uh, that's good. And I'd like, also like to say thank you to Darnell, our producer today. So anyway, thank you. I look forward to future conversations. Thank you. Me too, All right. George. God bless.